Good morning. Special greeting to dads who are here today. Happy Father's Day. Pray it will be a great day for you to rejoice in your family life. Appreciate the ministry of fathers. Hey, we're in a series called This We Believe, as you can see. And uh, what we're trying to do is to build a foundation for our own lives. This is week three. Week one began with probably the right spot, understanding that the Bible is the Word of God in its authority over our lives, that it is inspired by God. He breathed it out for our good. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. It is worthy to be followed in all that it teaches and affirms. It is our guide for life. We say that. Our name is Calvary Bible Church. So we began with the Bible, and for the next three weeks, which this is week two of the next three, uh, is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And last week we looked at the Holy Spirit, and today we're going to look at the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And the reason that we're doing this is because we know that what we believe in our mind and embrace with our heart is tremendously impactful for the way in which we live. You can't live without, or you live according to the things that you believe. And so this, we believe, is an attempt to ground the church not in our feeling or our experiences as much as the objective truth of God revealed in His Word. And today we're going to look at Jesus Christ. Now there was a survey that was done in 2022 conducted by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research and it indicated that the theological convictions of professing evangelicals are slipping away from the historic orthodox teachings of the Scripture. In fact, 38% of the respondents of this survey said that they were more likely to consider religious belief to be a matter of personal opinion than about objective truth. Two years earlier, that number was 23%. The researchers of this survey said this view makes it easy for individuals to accept biblical teaching that they resonate with while simultaneously rejecting any biblical teaching that's out of step with their own personal views or the broader cultural values. So I have a growing number of people who are able to look at the Bible and say, well, I like that, and I accept that, but then this, this doesn't make sense, and so I'll take that off, and it becomes a smorgasbord of what we believe. And we want to take what the Bible teaches and say, this is the ground of our understanding. We're actually rooted in what the Bible says, and, and we believe it. And today we're going to talk about who is Jesus Christ, with the hope that it grounds our understanding. So whether you've been in church for 40 years or 40 minutes now, um, I, I want to give you some things that will help us understand who is Jesus. Um, and if we were to take a survey, and we were actually to ask the people who come to Calvary, who is Jesus to you, what would you say? How would it be that you define who you understand the Lord to be? You can see our mission statement is we're building Christ-centered communities of people, and we want everybody at Calvary to be able to have a good understanding. I know who Jesus is. I know who he said he was and what he came into the world to do. And we want to make disciples of Jesus. 
not a pastor, not anybody else on staff. We, we want to be disciples of the Lord. And so it's really crucial. Um, here's the statement that we're going off today. It comes from our denominational statement, the Evangelical Free Church of America, and the statement goes like this. Um, so far I've been doing all the talking, so why don't you take a deep breath and let's read it out loud together, okay? We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our and advocate. This is a statement that we would understand. There are a lot of points to it. We're going to look at one key text, which also has a number of things. So I have a 24-point message for you this morning about the life of Jesus. No, I don't. I want to give you three things. Three things that you'll be able to take away, um, but it might help you if you have a pen. There is a pen in front of you there in the seat, and I'll give you $5 if you don't have five of these already at your house, okay? So um, I, I want you to go away with a foundation that you can say, all right, I understand. This is where we are. Could I tell you one other thing that makes this urgent for us? That survey said that people are basing their theological convictions based on how they feel. You might be surprised to learn that at, when Paul was writing some of his last letters in the New Testament, he talked about what it's going to be like at the end of the age before the Lord Jesus returns. And one of the things that the Apostle Paul describes is that when the end of the age comes, there will be the arrival of a lawless one, a world leader, who will be under the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception toward those who are perishing, he will deceive them because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And therefore, God sends to them, to the world, a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. At the end of the age is going to be marked by deception so that people will actually look at something that they, they know is wrong, and they will believe it to be true. Can you imagine living in a day like that? You laugh. Why do you laugh? Okay, so, so do you see why it matters what you believe? And if we could ground ourselves in these things and try to understand who is Jesus, this is of first importance, who is the man Christ Jesus? Now, this is not the Bible. This is a summary of statements, and it's not perfect. It doesn't say everything that there is to say about Jesus, but it is a good summary in two sentences about who Jesus is and some of the most important core tenets we would understand. But in order to get to this, 
you have to synthesize what the Bible teaches and you pull it together. So that means we're going to have to look at a number of different passages this morning. But there's one key passage that we're going to begin with. It's in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, let's open together there. Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, we'll just read these six verses. I'll read them out loud. I'll put them on the screen. And then we'll try to pull some things together that we can take away. Number, number 1, Colossians 1, 15. The Apostle Paul's writing, and he says, of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, is the word of the Lord. In these six verses, you see a summary of a statement about Jesus that Paul said that is one of the most comprehensive statements in one place. Let's go back to verse 15. And in verse 15, I want to just highlight two phrases that come out of this phrase and then some of the others, and then give us three things that we can take away today. Paul begins, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When he says that, he indicates that what we all know is that God is invisible. No man has seen God at any time. In fact, if we did see God and came face to face with God, what do you think would happen to us? <clears throat> we actually have some glimpses that when the glory of God shows up, whoever is in the presence of it falls immediately on their face. No man can look at God. And yet Paul said Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That word image is the word, Greek word icon. And we get the word icon in English from it. <clears throat> it means a reproduction a replica, the exact image, a precise copy. And by this, Paul is saying that Jesus is God to us in visible form. The invisible God became visible in Jesus. In fact, you're here in your Bible. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 9. <clears throat> Jesus is God in visible form. Chapter 2 Verse 9 says, for in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Simple statement, fully complete, the whole fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in a body. And we read verse 19 of chapter 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. We have a glimpse of this in his account with the disciples, in John chapter 14, you may know this, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He was with the disciples, and Philip entered in, and he asked Jesus, oh, if you would just show us the Father, that would be enough for us. 
And I think Jesus probably went like this at that moment. It's like, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. If you would just show us the Father, that would be enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me? He who has seen me, can you finish it? Has seen the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's there for us. The second phrase is he is the firstborn of all creation. Now this has created a little bit of misunderstanding. What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn of creation? That Greek word there, uh, prototakos, prototakos, basically means the primary one, firstborn. It can relate to chronology, so the first one who was born. But most often, it's about promogenitor, not chronology, about first in rank, not first in time. So of all the people who have ever been created, and there is a sense in which the body of Jesus was created when he became incarnate, he is the firstborn. He is of the highest rank of all humanity ever born. He is the firstborn of all creation. This is not to suggest that he is created, but he holds the highest rank. Again, if I were to return to that survey, 73% of people agreed with this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. But that's wrong. Jesus wasn't created. He was incarnated, but he always existed. He is the second person of the Trinity who always existed with his Father in heaven before the world was. And he is uncreated, uncaused, but the first import, of first importance in all the creation. If you look at verse 16, for by him all things were created, but not him. In heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, everything you can see, everything you can't see, spiritual powers, all created by him, through him, for him. He is the source of creation. He is the end of creation. It is for Him. And He is before all things, which speaks to His eternality. He is before anything was, and in Him all things hold together. You are alive today by the grace of Jesus Christ. He holds the world in order. That's who He is. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. No, I've got three things I want to tell you. Here's, here they are. Number one, if I could summarize then, I would want you to go away and say, that if I could say three things about Jesus, the first I would say is Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. I've suggested a number of passages. You might want to take a picture of it, write them down, but have them in your mind because 43% of people in that survey affirmed that Jesus was a great teacher but not God. It is not enough to suggest that Jesus is a great teacher who changed the world, but that he is something only human, only a great teacher, that he does not have divine existence in himself. He is fully God. Let's see if we can unpack it. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked his disciples in that text, who do people say that I am? What were the answers? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah one of the other prophets, he said, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the 
Messiah, Son of the living God. Now, if that were wrong, Jesus would have said, whoa, 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 don't go there. But he didn't. He said to Peter, blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. I am the Son of God. Not time to tell people yet, but I am the Son of God. I am God of very God. I love that passage in that exchange with the disciples. Another great passage is Philippians chapter 2. And this actually describes two of the things that I want you to understand this morning. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on. He was in the form of God from all of eternity. But he didn't consider that something to be held on to or grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is point number two. We're going to come back to it. But it describes Jesus eternally existing, but setting aside some of the prerogatives of his divine nature to take upon himself human form. And because he did that, What happened? Verses 9 through 11 happened. Because Jesus became obedient to the Father, even to the point of of death, Philippians 2, 9 says, Therefore God highly exalted him and gave to him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So just imagine this. This description in Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, took upon himself human flesh, went to the cross and died. Therefore, God gave to Jesus a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, in all of eternity, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, and that will glorify God for all of eternity. Can I ask you a question? How could Yahweh, who says, you shall have no other God before me, how can he be good with everyone in eternity bowing their knee to Jesus Christ and saying to him, you are the Lord in the presence of Yahweh? How can that be? What's the answer? You have to get this to appreciate it. (laughs) He is God. He is, I and the Father are one. So it is right in all of eternity for all of the creation to say to Yahweh, you are God, and to Jesus, you are the Lord, and praise to the Spirit because Christ is fully God. This is what's going to happen in all of eternity, and we should begin doing it now. Jesus Christ, you are Lord. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word was God. Verse 14 says, and we beheld His, um, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, you're getting the idea, right? 
The Bible affirms over and over again that Jesus has the full ontological essence of divinity in the same measure as the Father. He is the second person of the Godhead. Oh, you say, well, what about people when Jesus was alive? What did they think about Jesus? Did the people that he was around think that he thought of himself as God? John chapter 5, verse 18 says, um, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. As people listened to Jesus, they understood that the things that he was saying about himself was that he and the Father were one. In chapter 10, verse 33 of John's gospel, um, Jesus said, for what good works are you going to stone me? They picked up stones, they were going to stone him. He said, it's not for the good work that you're doing that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself to be God. Do you remember the story of the paralytic who came to Jesus with a few friends? They brought the paralytic to Jesus and they pulled the roof off and they let the guy down through the roof. Everybody remember that? And the very first thing Jesus said to him, man, your sins are forgiven. That was the first thing Jesus said. And the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled among themselves saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemy? For who can forgive sins but God alone? I know what you're talking about. What's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? That's a hard question because they're both hard. They're both only things that God can do. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can heal like that way. But he said, so in order that you would know that the Son of Man actually does have the authority to forgive sins. I, I am God. I can forgive sins. He said to the man, take up your bed and go. And he got up and went. What was he showing? Jesus was fully God. Okay, one more. How about the stormy sea and everybody's in the boat and they're terrified. They say, Jesus, why don't you wake up and come up here and help us? And so he gets up and he calms the storm. And they all said to each other, who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him? Who can make the wind and sea obey? Only God. You see, over and over again, it was not a false claim when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. It's everybody understood that was exactly what he was teaching. And the final verse that you'd look at is just beautiful, Hebrews chapter 1, especially verse 3, that simply says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Okay, point number one, Jesus is fully God. What goes with it, corollary, Jesus is fully human, secondly. He is a full human being, and human as it's supposed to be. We read John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was incarnate God, God taking on human flesh. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Say, well, that's really hard to believe. How could God become human? Well, Paul understood that. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, he said, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. It's kind of a mystery. A mystery. 
how human and divine natures can exist together in one human being without contradiction, without conflict, but they fully function together. There's no one like Jesus, fully God, fully man. Great is the mystery of godliness, 1 Peter 3.16. It says he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Okay, any questions? You're getting it, right? And the last one we looked at, he took on human form. In order for Jesus to become human, he had to set aside, he emptied himself, which doesn't mean he ceased to become God, but he set aside the divine prerogatives of his divine nature in order that he could exist in human form. It's a mystery and a great work of grace that the infinite God without limit would limit himself in a human body so that he could experience hunger, fatigue, um, all of the travails of life, suffering, persecution, and even ultimately experience death as we do. And he did that because he's fully God, fully man. One person said, Jesus is not the ideal man who was reaching up to God, but rather he was God incarnate, taking on human form, reaching down to us. So he's the image of the invisible God. He lived a life and experienced everything about human life. Now let's go back to our text, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might, what? He might be preeminent. The whole purpose of Christ coming into the world and doing all of these things is that he would have the preeminence. He is the firstborn. He is of most importance. He deserves all glory. He's the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Alpha Omega. There's no one like Jesus. He did this that he would be worshipped in all of eternity. He is the beginning, speaks of his eternality. Uh, firstborn from the dead we looked at. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now there's a second statement about the work of Jesus. We didn't have time to do it. I tried to fit it in, and I just said, we have to do that another time. But the person of Christ, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, which by the way is the way in which Jesus was able to come into the world without sin. You and I come into the world with a, a father and a mother. We, we come into the world by natural reproduction and sin is passed on. But not so with Jesus. The virgin birth of Jesus is the gift by which Christ enters the world as he does. Okay, last. Fully God, fully man. I'd like to suggest to you that you go away thinking Jesus Let's go back to our full statement for a minute. Um, there he is, the promised Messiah, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, crucified under Pontius Pilate, rose bodily, ascended to heaven, and sits at the right hand of God, the Father, as our high priest and advocate. Why don't you take that last phrase home with you? As high priest and advocate. What is Jesus doing right now? 
Because he went to the cross, was buried, rose again, ascended into heaven, where is Jesus right now? That phrase summarizes that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Being seated there is an indication that the work that he accomplished on the cross is fully complete and fully satisfying to the Father. Now, he is our faithful high priest and advocate. Now, high priest is one who is called to mediate between man, sinner, and God, holy. And the high priest would offer sacrifices. The high priest would step in to create a sacrifice in the Old Testament system that covered the sins of guilty people before holy God, and God accepted that sacrifice. But in steps a final sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ himself, and he becomes our high priest. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14 says, reflecting on the Old Testament system, that every priest stands daily in his service offering repeated sacrifices which can never take away sins. But Christ, when he had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time for his enemies to be his footstool. For by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's a great high priest. The next verse, Romans 7, again talks about all the Old Testament priests who died and they had to be replaced. But Jesus carries on his work permanently. He endures forever. He's a great high priest. And he's an advocate. What's an advocate? An advocate's one who comes alongside to help. The most often way we see this is in the legal system, that you might have a defense attorney. I remember being called in to help a young man uh, in our church who had gotten in a little misunderstanding with the law. And he needed help. He had uh, done something for which he was guilty, but he was going to stand before a judge and needed an attorney. And he asked if I could help, and I had a friend and who offered to help um, pro bono to help this young man who uh, was in court. And I remember being welcome to come along, which I did, and there was the defendant, and there was the um, defense attorney, and there was the judge. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a judge if you've committed a crime. And that was the case. And the judge spoke and spoke to the defendant, and he was guilty. And suddenly the defense attorney stood up and negotiated um, a just outcome for him. But the young man didn't have to say a word. Why? Because his defense attorney was there and negotiated the best possible case, which included the right restitution for what he had done. But he didn't have to say a word, which if you're a young man in front of a judge and you're not normally there, that's a frightening thing. It's like, you talk for me. <laughs> and like he did, and he, and he carried him through that. He's an advocate for the guilty, and it was made right in a very similar but much more important way. We have an advocate who stands or sits at the right hand of God but gets up on behalf of his own to say, they're mine. We have an accuser of the brethren who comes and say, you're guilty, guilty, guilty. And Jesus says, no, I paid for that, I paid for that, I paid for that. 
He is an advocate who comes alongside to help his own. Here's a couple verses. Romans chapter 8 says, who is going to condemn God's people? What's the answer? No one is. Why? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you've not sinned, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You confess your sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive you of your sins. What's just about Jesus forgiving sins? He paid for him with his own life. He is an advocate on our behalf right there. How great is that? Let me close with this last verse. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. A great text to go home with for this week. So that this time tomorrow, if you're feeling a sense of burden, and you say, boy, I wish Jesus was closer to me, you, you can say, I know that Jesus is fully God. He's fully human. He is my high priest and advocate. And this verse is your key verse. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, he is through the heavens and at the right hand of God, let us hold fast our confession. Have in your mind this survey that's going around that so many people are losing their faith, they're drifting away from the core tenets. I want to say to you, you should hold on to your confession of faith. Jesus Christ is who He says He is. He is the Son of God. He does love you. He did die for you. He, he has forgiven you by His grace. Hold fast to your confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. And the other way to say it is, we actually do have one who can sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You ever feel like when you're struggling with sin, you say, I wish God understood. God understands. You don't know how bad I sin. No, I don't. But God does, and He understands. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us when we are tempted. So, let us therefore Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us when? In time of need. Sometimes you have a time of need so that you'll draw near. And if you're not in need, you don't draw near. And sometimes God brings those things to bring His people to say, I need you. I needed you yesterday when everything was good, but I didn't know it. Draw near in time of need. Listen, I've been a pastor for a long time, and I've watched people who have walked with Jesus a long time. And they walk with Jesus a long time, and then suddenly the world caves in, and something horrible happens, a loss, a diagnosis, a reversal, something that is life-crushing happens to people who have walked with God the whole time. And I have watched many people who at that moment draw near to God and then can say, God is good. If you're on the outside looking into somebody whose life fell apart and they still say, God is good, 
you say to yourself, how can they say that? And the answer is, they drew near in their time of need and they found grace to help them there. You're on the outside and you look at it and say, I don't know how you can do it. That's because it's not your time yet. But when it's your time, you'll draw near and the same high priest and advocate will be there for you because that's who our Jesus is. Are there any questions? He is the Son of God. He is who He says He is, fully God, fully man, so He understands, and now He's at the right hand of God. What will you do in response to this today? I want to just encourage you to draw near to Him. And if you've never turned your life over to Him, this would be the great day to say, Lord Jesus, I, I believe who You say You are, and I trust in You with my life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray you will open our hearts today to believe all of this in a life-changing way, a way, that, a way that really shapes us for this time tomorrow, that when we're in our world, whatever we're going through, it will be true of us, that we will say our life is for Jesus. He is the Lord God, and we serve Him. He is fully divine, perfect humanity, and now cares pastors his people from the right hand of God as an advocate, praying for us. Lord, we thank you that you do that right now. And we just want to say, from this day forward and the rest of our lives, we want to do what we will do in all of eternity, bow our knee to you and proclaim that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. May it be, Lord Jesus, that our lives magnify you here on earth even as we will do for all of eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus. To you be glory now and forevermore, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and put it to music.